Good morning, church. Can you believe we're actually finishing the book of Acts today? Like, I, I've been here almost six years, and I think this is like maybe the fourth or fifth book we've finished, and this was one of the longer ones, and so very, very excited to do that. We began this letter, as I said earlier, in early 2022, and I'm not sure if I knew exactly what, I was, what to expect from this letter that speaks of the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Like I said two weeks ago, I'm going to miss teaching through this letter, studying and learning about this letter that Luke the doctor and historian writes from Peter and the other apostles' point of view for one-third of the letter, and then follows and ministers with a guy named Saul who becomes Paul, and Luke writes about Paul's adventures as the last of the apostles who Jesus chose to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth in which you and I are now a part of continuing that work of making disciples and being witnesses of what Jesus has done in our own lives. Last week, Pastor Mike walked us through the shipwreck. When I first wrote that, I, I wrote it wrong, and I said, last week, Mike preached, and it was a shipwreck. That was wrong. <laughs> Mike preached through the shipwreck and time at Malta, where Paul not only was shipwrecked, but was, a, was bit by a snake with venom for those of you who remember. And Paul did a lot of pre-evangelism, if you will. Then Paul was shipped again to Rome and was under guard with just one guard, the text said, because he was trusted not to make any type of escape because this was his idea to appeal to Caesar. Today, we will hear the finer, final words of Paul in Rome, and this letter concludes even though it kind of doesn't. But Luke ends the letter nonetheless, and we see what God has to teach us today as we finish this letter that has meant so much to me, and I hope it's meant a lot to you as a community. And so if you take notes, I'd encourage you to take notes. There will be takeaways at the end of the teaching, but it also it's an opportunity for us to have a better grasp and understanding of how Luke ends this letter. Verse 17 is where we're going to begin. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders— when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Three days later, from arriving in Rome, Paul called together the Jewish leaders to have a powwow and explain what had happened to him. And my guess is in the hope of testifying to what he now believes. And as we've studied over the past nine chapters or so, Paul truly was mobbed by a group of people who didn't have any actual evidence of anything that he had done wrong other than they disagreed with his interpretation of their very scriptures. Verse 18, they examined me and wanted to release me, the Roman government, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. Paul then tells these Jewish leaders that the Roman government found no charges against Paul worthy of his capture, and so they wanted to let him go. Verse 19, the Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And even though the Roman government found no actual charge against Paul to be worthy of imprisonment or of death, Paul appealed to Caesar. You want to know why? It's what Jason said in his takeaway, because God's will will be done. Verse 11, 
oh, sorry, Acts 23, verse 11. This is that other verse that we actually have spent a lot of time in in the past few chapters pointing back to where Paul had been imprisoned. And then it says this, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus stood among Paul while Paul was imprisoned and declared that Paul's ministry was not going to end in Jerusalem. It was not to just share in Jerusalem, but what he did there, he would also go and do in Rome. And this was the experience that he knew because Jesus had stood among him and told him, and he had faith in his Lord, and he trusted him. Now, Paul was declaring his innocence, and he also wants to make known that none of what he believes is in conflict with the God of Israel at all. But really, Jesus is not only the continuation, but the fulfillment of what the Hebrew scriptures foreshadow and proclaim. Jesus, and if you like to take notes, we say this a lot, Jesus is grace personified. And Paul makes that case from the Hebrew scriptures. Verse 21, they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of your people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. It's interesting to me that the Jewish leaders here in Rome had not heard anything bad from the other Jews in Rome, but they knew that people everywhere else were talking against the sect known as the way. Perhaps they were being polite but they hadn't received any correspondence that brought any formal complaints against Paul specifically. And so they wanted to hear more from Paul's own mouth about what he believed and others who identified with Jesus what they believed. And they also came to meet with Paul, these Jewish leaders, perhaps because he had been part of the Sanhedrin and he was a Pharisee. Verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying, he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and of the law of Moses and the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Imagine this. Paul, who has come from far away, by boat, been shipwrecked, been snake-bitten, now under house arrest with just one guard, has a larger-than-expected group of Jews come to his home, essentially his home church, and want to hear more about what Paul believes and what his views are, possibly because of all the drama and all the craziness that took place in order for Paul to even get to Rome. It's almost, church, like God knows what he's doing. So now Paul, given a captive audience, larger than expected, not expecting to have all of these Jewish leaders and, and all the other Jews come with them who knew of Paul's reputation as an opponent to the way, this sect of a Jewish religion wanted to hear from Paul's mouth what had changed, what he knew that perhaps they didn't know, what had happened that had made Paul's newfound passion possible. Now, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, Glendale specifically, and I went to school there until the end of seventh grade when I moved to Santa Clara and went to the same middle school that my older daughters go to and have gone to and even the high school that my eldest attends now. 
And growing up in Los Angeles, going to a few different schools from kindergarten to seventh grade, I had made a lot of different friends because I had uh, switched schools many times, but possibly one of the tightest groups as far as my childhood friendships were, were my friends I had made at school at my sixth grade, which where I came from was your final year of elementary school. Now, I had really only kept in contact with one friend from elementary school, a, a close friend, a best friend named Amanda. And back when I had Facebook, and it was cool, it's not anymore, okay? I posted a photo of our sixth grade graduation, and Eliza, thank you. That's half of it, I couldn't find the other half, but that's, that's half of my sixth grade, and, and it's large, but you really, you, you can't see me, that's fine. I'm the one who looks like Boston, okay? And so, uh, uh, this, was, this was our sixth grade graduation. I posted it on Facebook. And then after just a few moments, we had a ton of comments. We had a ton of people responding to this picture because people were tagging, uh, not tagging like spray paint where I come from, but tagging on Facebook now. And, and they, were, they were tagging their friends on it to be like, hey, look, you're in this picture. And then someone suggested a reunion, and it was probably me. Idiots. And so we decided to have a reunion down in Glendale. So me and a few friends started to kind of send out emails, texts, and Facebook messages, and we decided to have this elementary school reunion. I don't know if any of you guys have done this, but it was fun. And we spent the day together on the specific day. My family and I drove down. It was me and Aaron and Reagan and Lorelai, and Aaron was pregnant with Evie at the time. And the first thing we went to, just for context's sake, is Shakey's Pizza. Does anyone remember Shakey's Pizza? Yeah! That place is so good. And so about, it was like, it was like early, not early, but like mid-morning, and so we got there early and we were eating pizza at like 10 a.m., which you do, I guess. And about 20 of us and our families showed up. Then after we had eaten there and spent the, you know, the early morning together, the mid-morning together, a bunch of us ended up at Cheesecake Factory over by, uh, by I was going to say Valley Fair, but over by the Americana now. And so we ended up there and we went to Cheesecake Factory and we had uh, snacks and we had drinks and we had coffee and we had dessert. And that was a really good time, but it wasn't that many of us, but we were catching up about stuff. But the whole day was about what we were gonna do in the evening where we ended up at this pub that was willing to host us and about 50 of us showed up and with our families. And one of the gals I went to school with was named Alicia and she was an actress. And she had spent the day with us, but she had a conflict that evening. So she took me aside and she was like, hey, this has been so much fun, but I have a date tonight and I'm not sure if I should cancel. And I said, well, why not invite him? And she was like, huh, that's a good idea, let me ask him. So she asked her date, and he was like, absolutely. Oh, an elementary school reunion with all the people you grew up with, I'm in. And so he sent a car, and it picked her up, and they came together in that car, and they got there early, and we started to talk, and it was a lot of fun. But here's the thing about that date. I said that Alicia was an actress. And she had just started to date an actor that she had guest starred on a show that he was on. And she had guest starred on the show called Castle, and her date was named Nathan. Eliza, let me see the next picture. Yeah, so that's Nathan. And, and Nathan and I had, a, and oh, that's me without facial hair and a little, as a little boy, for the record. I forgot about that part. I wish I had blurred that out now that I'm standing up here. <sighs> But Nathan and I hit it off. We had a really great time. We started talking. And he came 
and he bought everyone's drinks and he was a joy to be around and we all just had an awesome time with him and Alicia and when he and I had gone to the bar to pick up everyone's drinks, he and I got into a discussion about work. Well, I knew what he did and he really was interested in what I did. So of course, he begged me without knowing to hear about the gospel of grace personified in Jesus Christ, which I shared with him and he listened and responded, you know, I grew up going to churches at ho during holidays, but I never heard the message that you just shared with me the way that you just shared it before. Now, I'd like to say that he heard what I said, then he believed, I took him to the fountain that was on Brand Avenue in Glendale, and I baptized him, and he became a Christian, and now he's a Christian Hollywood actor, and he makes really lame movies. He doesn't. He hasn't, from what I can tell. But... He has heard the gospel of grace from a guy who we met when attending a date's makeshift elementary school reunion. And that evening, God had ordained a testimony to be shared with someone who hadn't heard about the gospel of grace personified in Jesus Christ. Now, quick side note, my wife did not know about any of this, but she was planning on coming. She was pregnant with Evie, and I kept it a secret from her because I'm horrible. So when she showed up to the pub, as a huge Castle fan at the time, she was pretty starstruck. But Nathan made her feel like a friend, and she took, he, he took this picture with her. Eliza? Yeah. So they had a great time. Yeah. They had a really great time together. Okay. That was fun. Now I got to tease my wife, and when she watches the sermon on probably Tuesday, she's going to be like, are you kidding me? You put that photo up there? Yes, I did, sweetie. I love you. All right. Back to Acts 28. What did Paul testify to? He explained the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets, the very scriptures that each of these Jews believed and held dear. And through those very scriptures, he attempted to persuade them towards Jesus. Church, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you got invited today and you were like, hey, there's a barbecue. But the whole idea of persuading people towards Jesus is kind of what we're about as a community. We want to persuade you towards Jesus through these very scriptures, pointing out that you can know him. And once you know him better, you can grow to be more like him and glorify God with your life as a trophy of grace being sanctified through the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, some were convinced by what Paul said, but others would not believe. What? Only some believed? This is sarcasm, okay? The apostle Paul was sharing this. You're kidding. Oh, wait. This is actually consistent when the gospel gets shared. Because to be honest, my experience has been you share it and every once in a while someone believes, but there's a lot of people that don't believe and think you're weird. So some believe and others won't. Jesus said that there is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate and the narrow gate leads to life and the wide gate leads to destruction. The wide gate has significantly more traffic. This is consistent. If you are in this room or you're on live stream and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you have gone down the narrow road, but most people will not because they will not believe. Does this mean that we need to pretty up Jesus or make him more palatable and easy? No. 
Jesus speaks what most people think is a parable. And I want to point you to a passage about Lazarus and the rich man. It's a little long, and so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to find this, this what most people think is a parable, because it's a pretty great story to point out the human condition of not believing. But Luke 16 is where it's found. Luke 16, and it starts in verse 19. And Jesus is speaking this, and he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. They will not... Abraham replied, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, he assumes. And then one of the most prophetic things that I think Jesus said was, verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's almost like Jesus is prophetic or something. But he knew and we know that many just won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. You could also add that if someone doesn't believe Moses and the prophets, they probably won't believe the gospels and the epistles. They won't even believe if Jesus rises from the dead. And here is the problem. Some of us do believe. We believe by faith that Jesus is not only a great man, but he is God with skin. We believe this not just because the Bible claims this, but because we believe he rose from the dead, but others just won't believe this. They won't look into the claims of Christ. They won't look at the overwhelming amount of history that paints a picture of a risen Savior. So here we are. We're at an impasse. Some will believe and some won't. But that doesn't stop you or I from praying for people. That doesn't stop you or I from being a witness to people to testify to what we've seen Jesus do in our own lives. That doesn't stop us from being prepared with an answer to give for the reason, for the hope that we have as an answer when people ask. That doesn't stop us from living for Christ with the hope that others would want what we have and to know who we know. So Paul testifies in Rome, as the Lord has said that he would from morning to night, and some believe and some didn't. And here's what it says, verse 25. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. Here it is. 
the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, this is Isaiah 6, go, this go to this people and say, you will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seen but never perceiving. For this people's heart has been become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them, says the Lord. Many walked away from Paul, unwilling to believe. Many turned their back on the message of the gospel, and Paul, quoting Isaiah 6, their scriptures, where Isaiah said these words and pointed out the fact that Israel was unwilling to receive Isaiah's message so long ago, that Isaiah said that he would seal up the message, that God would seal up the message to wait for another generation of Israel to actually respond because the truth was just hardening Israel's heart. Now, this still happens today. When you and I choose to ignore or disobey the truth of the word, I've seen it happen over and over. I've experienced it happen to me over and over. People hear the truth and they respond or they reject. But even after some seem as if they've responded and received the grace of God, they really, like the parable of the soils, get excited for just a moment. And then the worries of this life take away the seed that was scattered. The smarter Tim who went to be with the Lord the other week, Tim Keller, put it this way, any person who sticks with Christianity as long as things are going his or her way is a stranger to the cross. But let's be real. Paul quoting Isaiah 6, it sounds kind of bad. It's a little aggressive. It sounds like God doesn't want people to hear the truth and receive it, but in reality, what is being quoted is the fact that people choose to not hear it or receive it. Even if a man were to rise from the dead, most will not be convinced. And what Paul says at the end truly is what set off many of the Jewish leaders of the day, and it's a sad reality, but a reality nonetheless that why and why I really do believe that the litmus test of Christianity, if you really want to know if, if Christianity is, is for you, if, you've, if you're a part of it, you believe in, unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But the litmus test is enduring, enduring through the hard stuff. Having the trials strengthen your faith in Christ rather than hardening a heart that is unwilling to believe. Verse 28, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. I thought about what would be offensive to you that I could say that would be like this to the Jews from Paul and everything that I was going to say was going to make you email Mike, so no thanks. As was Paul's custom, he took the gospel message first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, in this case, unlike the Jews, in this case, realized their spiritual dependence would, would be that they would receive the message because they were not self-reliant, they were Christ-reliant. But this statement especially was offensive to a Jew, and they would not receive that the Gentiles could also hear this message and be saved by God. And this is still a problem for us today, maybe not in the racial sense, but in a spiritual sense. 
Far too many of us in and outside of the church are self-reliant. We think we are good. We think we don't need saving because we have done nothing wrong in order to be saved from. And what I love about this letter, the book of Acts, and the history of how the church began was that the gospel saved some even though most did not think they needed anything to be saved from. The gospel message continues. It continues to this day. It continues to be preached all over this planet with the hope that God would open the eyes of some so that we would then realize our spiritual deficit. And the only one who could bridge that gap is not you or I trying really hard to be good, but God taking on flesh and not only dying in our place, but victoriously rising from the dead so that life is available to you and to me eternally. Woo! That's some good stuff. And God used men and women in the early church to progress a message of hope to the ends of the earth, to countries represented in this room, all the way to Silicon Valley in Santa Clara County so that you and I could know what God had done and who he is. And so we too could be adopted into his family and be citizens of the kingdom of God. So here is how Luke who's writing to Theophilus, who's probably a Roman official, concludes his letter that we have been studying for a year and a half. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two years, Paul was in Rome. And according to the Roman courts, the accusers had, you guessed it, two years to show up to attempt to bring charges against Paul. But also in this time period, the Roman Empire was brutal towards anyone who brought a frivolous lawsuit against people. And two years of being in this rented house, I think Luke's hinting to the fact that the accusers never actually showed up. Paul continues, it says, to proclaim the kingdom of God, taught about Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So a lot of people, you know, the letter ends. So what happens to Paul? I know you're all like, what happened? Well, Paul finishes well. That's what happened to Paul. He finishes well, and in my opinion, that's the only thing that matters. He finished well. In his last letter that we think he wrote, which was 2 Timothy, he writes this to the still youngish pastor, and Timothy was probably in his 40s, so that makes me feel good. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, for I, Paul says, am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul begins that he's being poured out like a drink offering. Here's what he meant. Paul was being spent. He was spent. He had been poured out. This is one for his homies, if you will. Paul says that he has fought the good fight, which is the word that means wrestling. This is the word we get agony from. This fight, this wrestling, it was agony. It was a struggle, a race, and he was attempting to win. And that's a struggle. And here's my point. No one can do the Christian life 
without suffering. No one can. So if you're kicking the tires of Christianity, come. It'll hurt. Welcome. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. But what is it? What is it? I guess the real point is that whatever you do with the suffering makes all the difference. Does the suffering that comes in this life as a follower of Jesus strengthen your faith? Does it build your endurance? Or do you give up? Do you complain? Paul didn't give up. Paul was strengthened. Paul was beaten up, but Paul endured. And that is what finishing well looks like. You keep going. You work towards the goal. Paul says, and for Paul, and from his example, and from the word of God, we understand that we endure to be found faithful. Remember what Jesus said to Ananias when Ananias was arguing with the vision of the resurrected king in Acts 9. He said, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We're tools. Paul was an instrument. See, this was not a, this was not a threat from Jesus to Paul. This was a commission. Paul was going to suffer. And Paul wasn't going to suffer because he did stuff wrong He was going to suffer because he followed Jesus. And when we identify with Jesus, we identify in his sufferings. This is consistent. Peter the Apostle puts it this way in 1 Peter 4, but rejoice as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Then he writes to the church in Corinth, uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in his second letter, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And then he writes to the church in Philippi, I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to miss Tim Keller. And I don't know if all of you have ever listened to him or read things that he said, but you've been influenced by him if you were a follower of Jesus. You may just not know it. And I was listening to his sermon just the other day, and it took on a whole different meaning now that I know that he's gone on to be with the Lord. And it wasn't a quote I found written anywhere. It was a quote he said in a sermon, and so here's what he said. God will sometimes rescue you from suffering, and sometimes he will rescue you through suffering. And I cannot tell you, church, how many times I've experienced what Tim was pointing out here. The last few weeks for me have been pretty introspective. I have looked at old pictures that I wouldn't imagine looking at for the past few years because of the memories that were good at the time, but based on broken relationships and heartaches, they've become things I just want to ignore or put in the trash virtually. 
I flew down to Southern California this past week for a day, and I spent the day with my stepdad, who's getting up in years, and he lives on his own, and he has a tough time driving, and so I got to take him to a doctor's appointment and have lunch together. We ended up back at his house, in which I spent many weekends at because he's still in the same house that he lived with, with my mom, before she passed. My mom passed in 1989, who has been, and since my mom passed, my stepdad met Jesus. And he's been a faithful follower of Jesus. He has a, if you were here on Wednesday, I talked about this. He has a contrite spirit. He has a repentant spirit. He has a desperate spirit that knows that he cannot save himself. That he needs the Lord Jesus Christ, not just for salvation, but for every breath that he takes. He forgets this, like we all do. But he is aware of this and believes this. Well, I got to spend much of Tuesday with him, and we caught up, and he asked me how I was doing, and generally, like when you ask, you're like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm blessed. Things are great. But like, I was going to spend like seven hours with this guy, so I was like, all right, I'm pretty sure he cares. He's super safe space for me, and so knowing that he cared in his super safe space and I had nowhere to be, I was like, all right, so like four hours later, I took a breath, but I basically caught him up on everything that had happened in the past three years. And here's what I learned while processing out loud the way that I did with him this week. God has rescued me through suffering. I've suffered. We all have. COVID times created a lot of issues with relationships. Is anyone like, no, this didn't happen to me? Liar. Okay. I have always personally valued relationships. Sometimes, if I'm honest, perhaps too much. But I've been beaten up, I've been broken, I've been wrecked through these relationships. But God, but God has grown me in this time. Not in the cool Christian ways a lot of pastors want to be grown, like, oh, a larger audience and more resources and a shiny ministry or anything like that. No, 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 you guys aren't shiny, you're pretty. God has grown me in my need. He has grown me by making me realize my need. As the Holocaust survivor and hero, Corey Tenboom once was quoted as saying, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. And while I have an amazing wife, I really do. She's legit. And I have wonderful children. I have a pretty great staff. I have some pretty awesome elders. Elders, you can pat yourselves on the back. You're awesome. No, it's the Lord's work in you. This is a pretty great community. God is the one who has made me, has made known to me how self-reliant or relationship-reliant I have been on people who were not him. And here we are. God is in this business. You guys know this quote, but we quote it wrong all the time. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things work for the good. It says in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God, who is a redeeming God, takes the hurt takes the injustice, takes the stuff that we tend to be really quick to complain about or assume God isn't being fair because of. And for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he uses that stuff in our lives that we don't prefer. But God uses it for his glory and for our good to make us more like Jesus. 
And this is what Paul, who finishes well, experienced and proclaimed and exemplified until when Roman history tells us that Paul was martyred for his faith and witness that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. We don't get it in the Bible. Luke's kind of like, and we're done. But Roman history tells us Paul was martyred. We don't actually know how because people disagree. But Tim Keller finished well and Paul finished well. And he truly embodied what he said regarding what his life or death was like to him in Philippians 1. He said, I eagerly and expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ may be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Church of the Valley, as we close this New Testament letter, which was about the gospel being shared all over the world and knowing that the gospel will not be stopped. I hope that you will look fondly on this letter that we studied for a year and a half. I hope that you'd be better equipped for more study in all of the scriptures, both the Hebrew and the New Testament, that we would partake in Christ's sufferings, knowing that they are not in vain or without effect for the glory of God. Worship team, come on up. And let us pray as we conclude this time of teaching. <sighs> Father, uh, we come this morning and there can be distractions or our stomach can be growling. We're like, ooh, barbecue. But getting to be around your word together the people that are in this room, the people that are going to watch online, the, the opportunity we have to open it and talk about how good it is that, Lord, you took on flesh and you lived among us and you died the death we should have died and you rose from the dead victoriously and you ascended to heaven and one day you're coming back and you have given us the unfinished work of Christ, which is to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth and it starts in our homes and it starts in our ethos and our communities. God, it is good to be able to be together and not just be motivated or not just be beat up by the fact that none of us are good enough, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Lord, we thank you that we can live this life for you. We thank you that we can enjoy other people created in God's image and we can point them to the one who wants to not only save them and redeem them, but sanctify them and grow them to look more like Jesus. Man, if we all looked more like Jesus, this world would be a different place. So Father, may you get glory as we sing praises to you in song, and may you get glory as we leave this place and have a worship service dedicated to you with our lives of obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.